Hey, Nora. Hey, Sandy. So I was like, I was thinking that we could talk today about um, the the political implications of the latest Large Hadron Collider test. But you announced on Twitter that you're drunk. And so unfortunately, we can't get that deep. So this is a real bummer for me. (laughs) I'm sorry. I don't know if you know much about my life, but I actually only talk about physics and particle collision when I'm drunk in my household. (laughs) So let's do this. Perfect. (laughs) No, I'm just fucking with you, obviously. Uh, Um, That's fun. That's fun. I feel like I need to catch up, but whatever. Here we are. How are you? (laughs) I'm great. Actually, my partner was like, oh, if you're not feeling it tonight, like, why don't you guys do a spoof episode and call it Blandy and Snora and just talk about really boring news? Does he know me? Has he met me? <laughs> like, I would never do that. <laughs> that sounds terrible. <laughs> uh, I was like, that's, that's an okay idea. <laughs> but we, we, had already, we had already drank this box of white wine that um, someone brought us like two months ago when I had a, the kids had a COVID test. So it was this like apology white wine box for being in like temporary isolation. Mm. Anyway. You should get friends that bring you this kind of wine, everybody. They're really great. But it is the quality of wine that you only want to crack open when you are really desperate to just drink box wine. All right. Well, look, I... Which with club soda tastes like Prosecco. Oh. <laughs> Interesting. No, it doesn't. It's disgusting. Yeah, I'm, not, like, I'm not a box wine It tastes wine like marginally better. Person, but, you know, <laughs> I know some folks are, so... Go for it, you know, do, do what works, do what works. Um, so I've finished my first week of exams, which is great because yes. I have been delving more into your book finally, because I'm not just, uh, you know, uh, relegated to reading cases and Nora, what a phenomenal book. I, I think I just, I just <laughs> love, um, how much, uh, you put into thinking, uh, um, uh, thinking about organizing um, as part of your discussion of feminism. Like it, it's also, it's kind of a, a bit of a, a, a class uh, that you're giving people as to how to organize during the digital age and the things to look out for. And I really enjoy it. So thanks for writing that book. <laughs> thanks for reading it. You know, what? The, the thing that's so amazing about this podcast is that there's a lot, I'm, I'm sure you see a lot of our discussions like embedded in a lot of the themes that I explore. And so I find, you know, this exercise of every single week going through a certain issue or a couple of issues and really thinking about it from the perspective of, you know, what is true and what is happening, but also how do we organize and respond to it has been um, really formative. So I really should thank you as well. Oh, thanks. I I love it. I think it's great. So if you haven't, if you're listening to us and you haven't um, read Nora's book yet, um, you know, maybe you can read along with me this week. I'll I'll probably finish it at some point this week. So, um, you know, pick it up. It's really, really good. It's really, really good. And um, since we're all, you know, being grateful and sending gratitude out, do we have some folks to thank? Yes, we have some folks to thank. So this week, We have to give a lot of gratitude out to Cassandra, Hong, Hussein, Lauren, Faraway, Nancy, Aaron, Timothy, and Elaine. Thank you so much for your support. 
Thank you so much. And if you are a patron, you will have received an email from me today that says, hey, I know this hasn't been updated for like over a year. (laughs) Of course, the Patreon, we can upload our episodes there. And, you know, I fell a little bit behind. And here's the thing. If I just upload them all, you'll all get emails like one after the other for every single one that's been uploaded. And uh, I had some discussions with Patreon and there's no way to stop that from the back end. But there is a way to stop that on your end. So I'm giving you all a week's notice. (laughs) I'm I'm gonna do that in about a week. So, um, you know, if you If you don't want to receive a bunch of emails from us just saying, you know, episode, I don't know, 99 through whatever we're at now (laughs) has been uploaded, you know, just turn that feature off. And I do apologize. It'll be great. I mean, people love getting emails right now, don't they? Isn't that like something that people look forward to is email? I mean, ask the NDP. They they might know. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know what? I complained so much about their emails that they fucking removed me from their list. And I was like, you motherfuckers, I was not complaining so that you took me off your list. I know how to unsubscribe from emails. I was complaining because this is a shitty tactic. And now I don't even get to see it in its full glory because you removed me <laughs> from your list. <laughs> I'm sure you can make another email and, and get back on there. Um, but before we, <laughs> before we, this is not our topic for the day, by the way, before we get there. I I was listening to this podcast this morning, and I just wanted to make a really quick note about um, just the type of thinking, the type of problem solving that we're like aiming to get people to switch to um, who listen to this show. So I was listening to this podcast called 99% Invisible. Have you heard of it? No. It's a great podcast about just design and design thinking and uh, like the invisibility of design, things that have been designed that we don't notice and uh, just pointing those things out. And the episode I was listening to, I think it's the latest episode for those of you who listen to it as well, is about time and how time became um, a standardized and regimented thing with the advent of railroads. That was the thing that made it so that everybody needed to be on a consistent time around the world or, you know, in a country first and then around the world. Um, And uh, inevitably, they started talking about daylight savings time. Or as I learned from the podcast, daylight saving time. It's not daylight savings time, apparently. Oh, it's daylight saving time, which makes a lot more grammatical sense. But whatever. (laughs) Daylight (laughs) saving time. And, uh, you know, just the the fact that uh, people generally hate it in the fall when we have to fall back and all of these proposals that have been made to uh, just keep daylight time all the time or to, to, to switch it so that um, daylight time is the new standard time and that there will be another daylight time where we were basically just two hours forward um, in the summer instead. And then they reveal that all of these things have been tried before <laughs> in different jurisdictions. Um, and every single time people are frustrated 
because they're either, you know, uh, working uh, late at night and uh, it's, it, you know, it's, it's dark when, when they get home or they're, they're working when it's uh, dark in the morning and they're frustrated about that. And generally, there's just no happy medium and when will we ever figure this out? And I'm just listening to the show thinking like, couldn't we just work less? <laughs> <laughs> isn't the obvious answer that we don't actually have to be married to this idea of how long we work or work at all? <laughs> Just um, and the idea that time has to be tied to work and that, uh, you know, uh, we we can know we are no longer the type of society who can just wake up and work uh, with the sun. We have to be regimented on this eight hour situation. It's just like this is bizarre. And uh, I just think that so much of our uh, political thinking and creative thinking and just how we, you know, build communities and build societies have to move beyond the constraints that have already been provided for us. And that's kind of related to the stuff that we're going to talk about today. Oh, yeah, totally. I love that. I think that it's so interesting that, you know, the pandemic has given a lot of opportunities to to really call into question things that we have kind of assumed to be given within society. And the second that there's a crisis that, that pops up, you know, you actually realize that, oh, um, this isn't a given and we actually might be able to change things. And so I'm thinking about something like rush hour. So in my city, so I live in Quebec City. Quebec City is attached to the south shore of Quebec by two two links by a bridge or two bridges that are beside each other and a ferry. And a lot of people commute from the South Shore to the North Shore. A lot. I mean, many people commute from the South Shore to the North Shore. But if you're driving through Quebec and you're going to go on to the Maritimes, you're going to stay on the South Shore and not come to Quebec City. So this past week, the government announced a $10 billion double-decker tunnel that is supposed to be the largest and deepest in the world to try and connect <laughs> the South Shore to the North Shore <laughs> to support 5,000 cars commuting. <laughs> like, that's it. <laughs> what? <laughs> double-decker, right? Double-fucking-decker. And, you know, it's not clear that the government is taking this seriously because it is such a ridiculous plan, but they don't seem to be constrained by... I don't know, rules of any kind. They're like, yeah, we're going to fucking do this. And the newspaper took it apart and was like, well, like there's no tunnel of its kind in the world. Uh, and the closest one is in Hong Kong, which is like kind of a bigger city than Quebec City, which is a city the size of like Hamilton or Saskatoon and Regina put together. <laughs> and so, yeah, yeah, I think that that's a really good reminder that we need to not buy into those like – uh, those those modes of decorum or structure that 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 have um, framed our day, right? Like rush hour is a fucking fantasy. It doesn't actually need to be like that. No, not at all. And one of these things that kind of frames our world that I've been so frustrated about, just generally, but this week in particular, is the idea of objectivity. And I know what you're thinking. You're like, Sandy, you're in law school. And I'm like, yes, I get to be frustrated about objectivity all the fucking time. It's just amazing. It's fantastic. And I could tell you that objectivity doesn't exist. But this appeal, this appeal, this idea 
that there are certain people in our society that need to be objective, certain professions, notably journalism, you know, notably the courts, uh, notably, I don't know, what else? You know, some some people think that there's a way that doctors in in a way should, you know, be objective with respect to politics and so on. It's just fantasy because when you're talking about objectivity, what you're really saying is that, you want to tell a story or engage in an issue in a manner that doesn't upset the status quo. Like, I don't know what else objectivity means. <laughs> it doesn't. Right. It's always from someone else's point of view. It's always from someone's point of view, I should say. And so what the fuck is objectivity? Anyway, there's a few stories this week that uh, are really making me annoyed with respect to objectivity. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Objectivity is this kind of lie that started to seep into mainstream media in Canada in the post-war period, right? Because before World War I, Canadian media were all attached to political parties. And so if you read one newspaper or another newspaper, it tended to be because you were a liberal or a conservative or a socialist. There were newspapers for every kind of political tendency that were out there. And that was like the main way that parties were able to tell the stories from their perspective because their their political party was was a was an outlook, right? They understood the word world in a certain way. And so after the wars, there's this like growth in liberal media that assumed that there was this possibility of being objective, right, built into the center of the entire industry. And, you know, it wasn't exactly like solid, but it was obviously dominated by white men. And then slowly newsrooms started to open up to white women, slowly started to open up to racialized people. And then you had, you know, about a decade or maybe maybe two decades where there was a little bit more diversity within the newsroom. But there was a, a diversity of opinion in the newsroom. So you did have columnists that were left wing and you had columnists who were right wing and as the news media in this country has like just unbelievably atrophied, somehow this idea of objectivity has remained really, really entrenched. And so like forget about the fact that like Sue Ann Levy is a complete fucking piece of shit who has been writing racist and Islamophobic screeds for many, many years in the Toronto Sun. She still has no problem getting published. But anybody that is like left wing or maybe who has signed an open letter that was circulating in Canada in this past week about coverage about Palestine um, probably got called in if they work for the CBC to a meeting with their supervisors saying it was inappropriate for them to sign this open letter, which has been making the rounds within media circles. Although if you don't follow the media circles, it's possible you totally miss this story because, of course, it wasn't getting covered by journalism other than I think maybe Vice. <laughs> and so this Vice covered I, it. And I think there's one other outlet that's covered it. I, I can't remember which it might be the conversation. I'm not sure. Oh, yeah, maybe. Yeah, yeah. And so, and so this whole idea of objectivity is is actually kind of just holding a place for what we really mean, which is the dominant identity through which we tell stories in this country. And it isn't objective. It's just that it tends to be imagined through a white perspective for sure. And then you know, then it gets even more narrow than that. So middle-aged of a certain income, so at least middle income, if not higher, depending on the newspaper that you're reading. And uh, usually male, but not really, depending on if you're reading like 
diversions where they talk about fashion and this kind of thing. That's where the women <laughs> pages are. And so, yeah, so this idea of objectivity, it's really interesting because, you know, it was, it was really grilled into our heads in journalism school. And I remember, you know, I... <laughs> In first year, we were all given assignments to interview someone interesting. And while my classmates did, like, their boyfriend or their friend's boyfriend, like, people who sounded kind of interesting that they could get away with doing kind of like a really basic feature on, I decided to try and see if I could get June Callwood to agree to do an interview with me. And so June Callwood was a very, very well-known feminist journalist. And um, when I interviewed her, she was getting quite old and... She, you know, she had founded all of these incredible, like, causes, right? She's one of the founders of Casey House, which is an AIDS hospice in in Toronto. Um, And she she did a lot of other really amazing work. And I said to her, like, how did you balance your political opinions with your journalism? And this was the big question that I was wondering, because, you know, at 19, in my first year in journalism school, I was obviously very concerned about being able to do both. And I remember so well that she said, well, you know, you just have to not write about anything you're involved in. Mm. And it was such a surprise because I thought that she would have a bit more of a nuanced mm-hmm. take than that. And I was like, oh, shit. OK. Oh, OK. Yeah, maybe. <laughs> and, you know, as I've gotten, you know, more more experience as a journalist, it's like, no, 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 you can write about what you're involved in. You just have to be honest about your involvement. Yeah. Like you just have to put your involvement up front so people understand because this whole idea of objectivity is a complete lie. Yeah, entirely. And going back to the story of, of about the CBC. Um, so yes, this, there's this open letter that's signed by about 2,000 people, including a bunch of journalists and some academics and other folks who, who started to sign on after it gained some traction, but quite a few journalists as well. And after that, um, the CBC, the CBC of all outlets decided that uh, some of the journalists who'd signed that from um, the CBC were would be pulled now from covering um, uh, uh, events related to Palestine, which <laughs> because um, they could not be objective. And like the letter, basically, the open letter mm. basically is like we uh, appeal to not tiptoe around this issue and to actually cover it. That's what the letter says. <laughs> and CBC was like, "Oh my God, if you sign this, you can't cover it." And that is really, really fucking rich for an outlet that has uh, basically refused to talk about the Azarova affair, which is the issue that we've talked about a couple uh, weeks ago on this podcast of a professor who was hired at the University of Toronto Faculty of Law or recommended for hire, and then a judge... Uh, a sitting judge uh, who is a big donor to the University of Toronto made uh, some comments or, or essentially lobbied to say, you know, this this person uh, um, he, that this, he had concerns about this person's views on on Israel. And then her her appointment was uh, rescinded. They decided not to hire her. So if you haven't heard about this issue, it might be because you only get your news from the CBC. Every other mainstream uh, every other mainstream news outlet in Canada has covered it. The New Yorker has covered it. Um, and there's like a big censure campaign going on from the Canadian Association of uh, University Teachers. And that censure campaign has resulted in 
um, the cancellation of so many events, including um, an, an event with a former governor general, Mikhail Jean, and uh, has resulted in uh, a lot of um, academics uh, uh, canceling their events and making comments about uh, not doing things at U of T. That seems like pretty big news. <laughs> and the CBC mm-hmm. didn't cover it. And their first article about it was published, I believe, this weekend. And it doesn't talk at all about anything regarding the campaign, about the censure movement. It just says that a panel uh, uh, to, to review the judge's actions have determined that uh, that judge doesn't require some form of uh, reprimand uh, and that it was an error, but um, shouldn't, shouldn't happen again. And it's like, sorry, is that objective? Is it objective <laughs> to ignore a major issue that people around the world uh, are talking about, academics around the world are talking about, um, activists around the world are talking about, and to only discuss it um, as it relates to a decision being made from people in power? Mm-hmm. Is that objectivity? And if it is, to whom? Because it doesn't seem objective to me to ignore that issue. I mean, let's think about um, the Al-Aqsa Mosque uh, attacks and how that was covered in the media. Now, the Al-Aqsa Mosque is a very, very important mosque in uh, in in the Muslim faith. It's a very important site, just generally, historically, in the world. Perhaps as important as Notre Dame mm-hmm. Cathedral. Yeah. And recall that when the Notre Dame Cathedral uh, was, you know, affected by fire, how deeply it was reported and how much people felt um, about the, you know, the, 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 the uh, um, damage to the building all over the world. Is it objective that we didn't get the same sort of coverage about the Al-Aqsa Mosque? Yeah, right. Exactly. That's a really important question. And like the reality within mainstream media is that there is no real such thing as objectivity. There are principles within journalism that are really important. Uh, They are fairness, you know, being fair to your subject, being accurate to your subject and being balanced. And in all of those three, objectivity doesn't really play a role, you know, like as someone who's a left wing writer, I strive to be fair and accurate all the time. And the question of balance, I mean, for me, the, the, the scales of balance are tipped in, this, in the favor of justice and people who read me understand that that's what they're going to get. Um, but balance is also not a question of objectivity. It's a question of scale, right? And so is it balance for journalists in Canada to always talk about um, the like what's happening in Palestine as being, uh, you know, back and forth or a skirmish or uh, as something where there's two sides that are struggling for peace? And and it's interesting because there's there's this like attempt from mainstream journalists, mainstream journalism, I should say, because I don't think it's individual journalists that are driving this. I think that there's just a culture of doing this. But there seems to be like this interesting focus on, especially with the, the Middle East, like, is it possible for Israelis and Palestinians to live in peace? 
And so then rather than dealing with the question of the siege on Gaza or the occupation or how Israel has so much power in this discussion, they focus instead on individuals and saying, oh, look, like here's an Israeli, here's a Palestinian. They work together in this really wonderful program. And it's like, sorry, who the fuck doubts that average people, when you take the war aspect out of it, the control aspect, the power aspect out of it, average people want to live together in peace. There's really not much question there. But there, there, when, they, when it's reported like that, there's no balance. There's no real attempt to understand that this is an oppressed and an oppressor. This is not a, an equal sides of rockets being shot this way, rockets being shot that way. Like it's a completely different scale. But the funny thing about this letter is it's like, uh, oh, wow. So you're taking off how many journalists covering Israel-Palestine right now? Like who at the CBC is covering Israel-Palestine right now? Like, I mean, like, <laughs> exactly. oh, so, they, so these folks can't cover like the local rally as if like that's going to be the extent of the news coverage, which in a lot of the CBC, uh, it that's that's all it is, right? Because unless you're talking about international coverage and only today on Sunday did CBC's team arrive in Jerusalem to actually cover this, it's like, Okay, like that seems to be really slow, but fine. At least you've got folks there on the ground. Good. But like for for the vast majority of the corporation, for journalists who are in outlets all across this country, like what exactly does that mean? They're only covering it from the local perspective and they don't have a right to be able to vocally say we need balance in this discussion, like enough of the era of tipping the scales in favor of Israel very, very clearly through all of the rhetoric, the coverage, what we focus on and what we ignore. Yeah. And I just, you know, the idea of objectivity doesn't just affect uh, the media world. Uh, it affects all sorts of other worlds, um, uh, notably, you know, law. Like, let's think about that. Does it make sense that we tell ourselves that the law is a or, you know, the courts are neutral arbiters of right and wrong and of conflict. Of course they're not. Of course they're not. Like, just imagine the issue of, uh, you know, let's pick a crime like theft, for example. You know, when corporate theft happens, do you think that they're getting the same sort of arbitration from the courts as a petty theft for someone who is potentially in poverty and just trying to do what they can to make ends meet? They're absolutely not. But we tell ourselves that because we have a rule around theft that we're going to just apply, <laughs> you know, we're just going to apply to everyone, no matter who they are, what circumstances they are in. And, oh, well, I may have some exceptions for, for these types of bodies of people or people or corporations or whatever, that it's neutral. It's not. It's not. It, the idea of neutrality and objectivity is, is just completely false. I think that in like the medical world, that has been opened up in a big way in this last year. It, for so long, it felt like um, there was a very small minority of, of people in medical professions who were willing to be uh, uh, political on particular issues um, because they thought, you know, there's this responsibility to be neutral on these issues as a medical professional, but you, you really can't be like, you know, if we're, if we're taking a look at how the pandemic has impacted certain communities and the ability to access health, the ability to access care um, and the ability to just be well, 
to get cared for at all. Like, why would anybody who's interested in um, delivering and helping uh, people to be healthy and providing care be neutral or objective in how they provide that care. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense. We know that our society is set up such that things are unequal. How can you then pretend, how can you pretend to be objective? What, and what that results in, you know, as someone who's like uh, doing BLM work, it's like it results in this bizarre, <laughs> weird frenzy from journalists who are like, okay, well, um, you know, uh, black people are, are uh, you know, the numbers tell us that black people are being um, uh, mistreated by police. Um, black people themselves are telling us that uh, um, they're being mistreated by police. And in the interest of objectivity, instead of a journalist thinking to themselves, let me ask politicians why they're not doing anything about this, which would be the other side, I think. <laughs> or let me ask police why this, these are the ways that they go about things. They ask the police, mm-hmm. are you harming black people? <laughs> like, which is like, <laughs> what yeah. the fuck? Like, this is, that is not objectivity. It is, no. I, I don't know, what do you call that? Foolishness, just <laughs> your nonsense. Yeah. PR even like it, it takes this issue it takes any issue and it really distorts it and this is where things get really confused for average people because unless you're staring at the media all the time and you know the stats and you know what's happening on the ground and then you see how it's being reported you don't actually really appreciate how much things do get distorted as they filtered out through journalism and and so and this is like a really big part of being media literate um, to be Mm -hmm. able to understand like what an article is saying, what's an article not saying, why is it taking this approach? And like the pandemic has been such a really good example of this where uh, like from the start, it has been this like, oh, lockdowns are bad. Let's listen to small businesses. Oh, but lockdowns are good. Let's listen to doctors. Oh, but they're bad. Here's a bar that's closed. Oh, but they're good. Here's someone who had COVID. Oh, but here's a hairdresser who cannot work. But they're good. Here's a woman who lost all of her family. Oh, but here's a small business owner who's really sad. Literally, that's all the journalism has been. And and this is this is like where objectivity and balance get like completely confused because there's really no appreciation of the scale. One of, one of my kind of like funny stories is a friend of mine was tr- was covering the American election and was trying to get local opinion. I'll try not to say where in Canada, but let's say local opinion from Americans on the American election. And they were telling me that it was so hard to find any Americans living in Canada who would support Trump. And, you know, the reason for that is because most Most Americans who would leave the United States would have a bit more of a global look on the United States. Like there's not any reason for someone who would love Trump to the point of defending Trump to leave the United States. Right. So it's like rather than the story becoming – what is that actually about Trumpism that that it's so nativist that they just will not like they they tend to not leave their their country they're not the ones that leave to find other opportunities in other countries no they worked so hard to find anybody and so throughout the coverage of the American election this particular media organization constantly interviewed 
a conspiracy theorist who left Canada to move to Texas, where this woman claimed she had finally the medical care that she never had when she lived in Canada. And through this experience, tried to make herself into this like alt-right personality. But whenever she was featured on the news here, it was like, oh, average Canadian left Canada, found happiness in the United States. It was like, this isn't balanced. This isn't objective. This is like completely torquing the truth, which is the 99% of Canadian Americans living in Canada are like Democrats, actually. Uh, and not only that, but they voted for Bernie, <laughs> right? In the in the primaries, the, 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 the international Bernie support was really, really high. And I don't recall hearing a disproportionate amount of Bernie information to reflect the, the fact that there was a lot of American Bernie supporters living in this country, right? And so this just completely distorts how we understand reality, how we understand what's happening. And it's all done under the cover of, oh, but this is objectivity. And if you're a young journalist or an old journalist finding yourself in this in this world, it can be really scary to challenge. Because if you do try and challenge it, you very easily can be uh, let go if you have no permanence. If you're like a, a temporary worker or on contract, you can find yourself passed over for stories. You could find yourself treated poorly. You can find yourself pushed out. The environment becomes toxic. And it's like all for what? All because you just can see that this is bullshit. Like, is is that it? That the protection of these sacred ideals of like unbiased, which doesn't even exist, is like it must be protected at all costs. It's it's a really interesting phenomenon. And it hurts so many journalists as it's being enforced. Yeah, it hurts journalists, and it and it hurts uh, the community that is that that is receiving these stories and get a distorted version of the truth because there's this weird, weird obsession with trying to find this other side, even if the other side doesn't exist or if it's immoral to look to the other side. It's it's you know, uh, gosh, it's you know, even if, it, thinking about coverage of things like. Um, uh, the uh, truth and reconciliation in Canada. It's like y you'll talk to First Nations communities who will say, uh, you know, this is uh, messed, and then talk to the government who says, oh, no, we're doing great work. <laughs> it's like, why would you do that? Why not yeah. instead talk to talk to a diversity of uh, j like a representative uh, group of different First Nations communities uh, and Indigenous communities and just put out that message instead we know what the government's already uh, messing up on you can you can tell that and ask the government questions that are beyond the question of how do you respond to that which is <laughs> which is the objective question that i hate so much which is like okay um you know like we're here listening to this community that has been wronged or we're here listening to this person who has been wronged or we're here um interviewing this group of people who are saying that they've been wronged um, let's go to the person who has obviously wronged them and say, how do you respond to that? It's just <laughs> such a cop-out question. Like you're a journalist, you can ask them, if they are people in power, you can ask them questions holding their feet to the fire. And isn't that what most people who get into journalism want to do in the first place? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Isn't that kind of the point? <laughs> well, it depends. Because if you're in journalism because your parents were journalists, the answer is probably not. <laughs> 
Burn. Yeah. Well, you know, it's one of these things. One of the, one of the the issues that I've been really preoccupied <laughs> by, um, especially through this look of like fairness and balance and objectivity, uh, on bias, I guess, is the way that the anti-vaccine movements have been covered in Canada. And, you know, from the start, mm. it's been so clear that these movements, and I say movement, I know there's a lot of left-wing people that get, like, frustrated to, like, apply that label to a right-wing kind of reaction or backlash or something. Um, but I'm still going to use it because I think it is useful um, because there are elements of movement building that are happening in these places. There are groups that are organizing. There are groups that are reaching out to people and trying to bring them in and their ranks have grown a little bit, right? Like, you know, in Quebec City, we've seen rallies go from a couple dozen to a couple hundred back down to maybe a couple dozen. But there, there's obviously like some appetite for for this. But when I say there's some appetite for this, um, the real question is how much appetite is there actually or how much is this a, a media invent invention, really? And, you know, Sandy, I was looking at the vaccination rates in Canada. And, and so considering how much attention there has been on vaccine hesitancy, oh, vaccine hesitancy among racialized communities, which is like the favorite white person story to tell, which I'm just so annoyed by, mm -hmm. and um, the anti-vax movement. Um, how much? How many um, people sixty years of age and older do you think have been vaccinated in Canada with one dose? Mm, I know Canada has been doing better lately. Six sixty percent? No, higher than that. Seventy <laughs> percent? It's even higher than that. Wow! Really? Yeah. So um, Canadians age sixty to sixty nine. Uh, are the third highest vaccinated rate. I mean, it's even higher for 70 and 79 and 80 and, and higher. But from 60 to 69, um, women have been vaccinated at 83% and men have been vaccinated at 80%. Wow. Yeah. I mean, like, th that's that's the age category. And as I said, it goes higher from there. 80 plus is in the 90s. That's the age category that has had the longest amount of time to get vaccinated, right? And if you look at the the ages that go below it, I mean, that's the ages that have had less time to get vaccinated. But even the age that is uh, 50 to 59, women have been vaccinated at 66.7%. So more than two thirds, I mean, just basically exactly two thirds of, of, of women aged 50 to 59 have been vaccinated. Men, it drops to 60%. But that's still really good. And I'm looking at these numbers, hearing the news of jam-packed vaccination clinics and lineups that are still going down the street and, and clinics that are trying to stay open all night to try and meet demand. And I'm like, where's the where's the anti-vaccine movement in all of these numbers? Because the media told me that we would have a crisis of getting people vaccinated. Yeah, see, this stuff is, it's, <laughs> I mean, thank, thankfully that the, the, that media coverage didn't impact, well, and who knows, maybe it has impacted communities of people who um, are more hesitant because they, they've seen that hesitancy is uh, somewhat popular in some way, but thankfully it hasn't in, in a large way. But that's the danger in, in like, uh, appealing to this objectivity that is is fake or pretending that there's this balance between um, uh, this uh, folks who are interested in getting the vaccine who aren't or folks who believe in climate change and 
those who don't or <laughs> folks that um, acknowledge anti-black racism and those who don't like it's it the, the danger is that you harm the ability to um, to make the sorts of uh, um, concrete steps towards either vaccination or ending climate change or whatever uh, in our communities that we desperately need to take all because of this weird weird, weird attachment to this idea of objectivity. Um, And I think another danger is the way that the right exploits this idea of objectivity. And thinking Mm, about this this journalist, um, uh, this was a a trending story this week, this journalist from AP who um, in her days at undergrad was involved in um, Palestinian solidarity events on campus and was active as an activist um, at some point in her past. And uh, then, you know, went to work I- in journalism. And uh, at this, you know, was was upfront about it with her employers who were like, this is, this is fine. But noting that uh, there were folks on the right who had been trolling her for years and uh, and complaining to her employers about her saying that she couldn't be objective on issues. Well, this week, um, with all of the news that is happening in Palestine, AP decided to let her go uh, because uh, they said that she couldn't be objective based on some tweets that they would not identify to her. Um, and, you know, this is this is ridiculous because... It's not the fact that AP made some decision based on her reporting, based on some editing that they had to consistently do. They made the decision likely because of all of the the organized complaining that people on the right uh, from Zionist communities were, were making to AP. How the fuck is that objectivity? How is that objectivity? Yeah, and this story is even more bizarre when you consider the fact that um, mere days before AP made this decision, Israel bombed AP's Gaza office to the ground. Right, So the Associated Press had an office in Gaza City and the Israeli government, the Israeli forces tor- targeted this, this apartment complex and and bombed their offices to the ground. And so, you you know, as a media organization... How in the fuck do you look at a conflict where you have been directly targeted, where your staff have just lost their offices, their computers, their files, their their sense of safety, their ability to be journalists in, in this situation, and especially in a region where there's like a huge lack of journalists because of Israel's siege on Gaza and their control of, of who can go in and who can go out? And AP sets back and says, oh, some Stanford Republicans are coming after our new hire. We better fire her for her history of Palestinian solidarity, forgetting the fact that she grew up as like in an Orthodox Jewish family and community, ignoring the fact that among campus conservatives in the United States is the most virulent and violent expressions of anti-Semitism right now. And ignoring the fact that their own like offices and, and, and ability to actually report on the conflict, I'll use the words that they would use, the conflict, 
has been bombed to the ground. It's just so stunning that that then the management at Associated Press be like, oh, yes, we need to get rid of Emily Wilder rather than being like, no, no, this is noise. Like the, the campus Republicans at Stanford can fuck themselves and we'll focus on her work. We'll focus on the quality of her work. And if there's an issue with the quality of her work, we will address it. It, it's so cowardly. And the problem with it is it sends this message to other media organizations that this is OK, that this is an OK way to address someone who doesn't fit into the mold within newsrooms. And the only good thing, the only good news about this moment that we're in right now in the United States and in Canada is that young journalists are rejecting these norms and are, are more confidently mm-hmm expressing their opposition to them. And I think that this letter in Canada is a really great example of that, where, I mean, I can't imagine something like this being being circulated and signed even five years ago, um, let alone, I mean, 10 years ago, right? So that that's the only good news. But the problem, of course, is that there's going to be people who uh, who become the target along the way. And Emily Wilder is a really good example of that, where the far right knows that they can exploit um, the conservative, small C conservative sentiments of so much of media management and just get rid of people. And so coming back to Canada, you know, look at who owns most daily newspapers in this country. It's Post Media, Post Media, who's owned by a hedge farm, who is uh, virulently uh, pro far right. I mean, the kind of columns that run across the post media platform sometimes are just like, what in the fuck is this? And more and more, like even centrist commentary and then let alone left wing commentary is just like impossible to find in a lot of daily newspapers. It's really bad. And it's and it's something that I think that journalists need to really publicly reckon with because it is changing, fundamentally changing the character of journalism in this country. Yeah, I think um, a good way to close is to remind everyone like why we're at a moment right now where there can be an open letter that a bunch of journalists are signing that says, you know, we we um, no longer want to tiptoe around this issue. We have to tell the truth here. It's because about a year ago, there was a bit of a racial reckoning in Canadian newsrooms uh, when uh, people of color um, all over Canada started to push back on the, the very intense whiteness that controls Canadian media. And in making that pushback, nobody was was asking for objectivity, although we could frame it that way. There's certainly a rhetorical way that we could frame it that way, but that's ridiculous. The idea is about justice and the idea is about truth. Like what story are you telling and who are you telling it to? Who are you telling it for? From what standpoint are you telling it? And if you are only telling stories that matter to a certain type of Canadian who it has to be a man and has to be white and has to be from a certain type of place, then you are missing a whole lot of, of, uh, of nuance um, and meat of the stories that you are telling. That's the kind of thing that allows you to leave out um, the idea of defunding the police from a story because you can't understand that that is a perfectly normal, reasonable thing to consider for many people for whom this issue touches the most. We didn't call for objectivity. We called for sense. <laughs> for something that makes fucking sense. 
And, uh, you know, like that is that racial reckoning is what brings us to this point. And to pretend that objectivity is the thing that's on the other side of the coin is a lie. It's not. What it is is actually white supremacy. To be quite frank and honest, that's just what it is, um, is an appeal to, to tell the news in a way that does not upset the status quo, that does not upset white sensibilities. And that is unacceptable and we refuse and you know cbc and other news outlets if you're going to pull journalists from telling these stories um because you are so committed uh to making sure that you know the the white status quo remains as it is you will continue to fail this will this is the end <laughs> for you um because out this this uh, this refusal of objectivity is the future of journalism in Canada. And uh, if you are not going to move with it, all of these talented journalists, all of these talented new journalists who are coming up who are ref refusing this frame, they're going to leave you behind. Mm -hmm.